Thank you for joining us today. The following is a message from North Place Church. Our hope is that it will inspire you, uplift you, and bring you closer to Christ. If you would like to visit the video of this message, visit our website at northplacechurch.com watch. I have a unique assignment today to preach to you a series that we've been promoting called 42 Life Principles. I'll kind of tell you how we got here. Uh, over the last few weeks of 2016, uh, actually the last several months of 2016, and preparing for our Advent and Christmas series called Home, I got a little bit more nostalgic and reflective than normal. Started looking back at my past with a greater sense of gratitude and looking forward to my future with a greater sense of expectation. And maybe that's what a lot of people do at the end of the year. Um, Maybe that's what a lot of middle-aged people do, like me, as they approach another birthday. I don't know. I can't speak for everybody, but I can speak for myself and tell you that's the kind of season the last several months has been for me. As I thought about it and looked at it, the past and then the present, in 2017, Haley and I will cross 24 years of marriage. We will have the privilege of completing 12 years of pastoral ministry in this great church. This year will be my 27th year in full-time vocational ministry, and I will celebrate my 43rd birthday in just a few weeks. Time and tenure has a way of making you a bit more reflective. And some people choose to reflect on the bad, and they wind up becoming bitter. And it's not that I don't have plenty of bad things to reflect on. I do. But when I go back and reflect on my past, the goodness of God and the graciousness of people is so tangible that it outweighs the bad and the cause for bitterness. And while reflecting over the last 42 years, it's kind of a personal journey, a personal process. I just decided, you know what, I'm going to use 42 years that I'm about to complete as a goal, and I'm going to write down the 42 most significant life-changing lessons for me. And as I started to do that, I realized that journey wasn't really personal, that the things that I was quantifying in 42 probably needed to be said or said again. And so I realized it was a journey that we needed to go on. So at the end of the year, last several months of the year, we started talking about that as a church family. So this weekend is the first in that journey And I don't know if you, this has been more difficult for me than I expected because I just thought I'm going to grab 42 things that have been really important. But what happened is when I thought I had the list of 42 complete, I would remember something else that I had to say, which meant I had to boot something off the list that was already there. And that's been a challenge. And then I don't know if you've done the math. I've got four or five weeks to have this conversation. And if I do four or five weeks, that means I have eight or nine points every Sunday, which means I'm going to have to rapid fire through the points. Um, but I believe we're supposed to stop and spend a little more time on some of them to allow the Holy Spirit to dig deep in our hearts. Let me tell you how I do messages. I come into the weekend with a pretty detailed outline, and then I get up on Saturday mornings, and I write a letter to one person in the church. It's the whole body, but I use one person. There's a person, and I write a letter. And I, 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 that letter becomes the manuscript of my sermon. Yesterday morning, I got up to finish the letter, I was in the middle of writing the letter to you, Uh, that would be this weekend's message, and um, 
uh, was interrupted, as pastors' kind of lives are on occasion, with tragedy. Um, but this one was a little different because the phone call was for a family that lost a 16-year-old daughter in an accident that attends our church. Their 12-year-old daughter was being care flighted in, in ICU. Uh, we didn't have a lot of details, but we just knew that the, 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 we could hear despair in the voice, and our, we are parents. The difference, though, is uh, these kids, we not just pastor them, but they go to school with my kids. They play on their ball teams. We were woven into their lives beyond the weekends. Um, and so my children were devastated, a pain that I've never seen in them because they've lost family members just never appear. The life that we live just seemed so brief and fragile in that moment. I was supposed to preach our Saturday night service, and I said, John, I don't know what to tell you. My, my sermon is not finished, and if it was, you can't tell my stories. Here's what I got. Do the best you can. And I believe there was a tenderness of the Lord here last night, and John was gracious to step in in a difficult last-minute moment while Haley and I went to the hospital to be with the Hooten family. If you don't know Steve and Jana, they are uh, quiet people. Steve is a police officer in Richardson, uh, was officer of the year last year in Richardson Police Department. Jana's a businesswoman. They're godly people. Emma, Allie, and Sarah. Uh, Allie is the one who passed yesterday in the accident, and Sarah has got a long road in front of her. She's uh, fighting today. She's going to make it, but uh, a lot of broken bones and uh, needs our prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray for the Hooten family. But I will tell you... Um, my heart is torn today. My mom texted me this morning and said, how can I pray for you? I said, you need to pray because I need to preach, but I don't feel like preaching. You know, just to be honest. I know I'm supposed to all the time, be a man of faith and feel like preaching. But to be honest, I'd just soon be at the hospital with Steve and Janet today. But I felt like I was supposed to preach. I'm supposed to still talk about some of the things that have shaped my life. But because of what happened yesterday, I'm kind of less put together. My letter's not complete. It's just a bunch of thoughts written on a piece of paper. Um, and so I'm going to ask you to open your hearts. And some of the things that I'm going to say to you this morning, I was going to say in the coming weeks, but they've kind of been moved to the forefront because of the events of the last 24 hours. And this is the first thing I would say to you that I've learned in the last 42 years that is very important for you at any time, but especially right now. Number one, God is good, and so were His people. There are times in life like these that may make us question that. The goodness of God, or there may be moments in our lives that cause us to question the goodness of people. But I can promise you, if you live long enough, you will come to the same conclusion that I have, that God is good and so are His people. I stood in a hospital room last night, watched police departments from multiple cities, back in a hospital room and churches and school and family members to the point hallways and the waiting rooms they didn't have anywhere to put people because the body of Christ is big and it loves deeply when people hurt and I stood there grateful to be a part of the family of God I hear people talk about church splits and I hear people talk about the heartache the pain that was caused there are people who aren't in church today because somewhere in their past a pastor, a leader, someone in church hurt them and wounded them. And I know those things are very real. 
But I also know that there are a lot of great pastors that have been thrown into a bad bunch because a few failed miserably. And all churches have been thrown and cast into a bad light because some have failed miserably. And a lot of Christians are viewed as hypocrites because some have failed miserably. And I have no doubt in my mind that those instances are real and they happen. But those are instances. They are the exception. They are not the rule. I can tell you as a whole, God's people are good. God is good. And so are His people. His faithfulness is real even in moments of heartache. When Haley and I were pastoring our first congregation, there was a season where God moved on us to... uh, to give up our salary. We were pastoring a church in a very depressed area of the nation and uh, there were a number of people in our church that were living on government assistance. The church was struggling financially and the Lord challenged us to go without an income, to give up our salary for a year, trust Him for our income and to sow our income into the needs of the church. I was worried about that because if one of the larger churches in southern Arkansas, their pastor can't pay the bills, it's a bad reputation for the church. But I really sensed in my heart God wanted us to do that. And I asked God, how are we going to live? We've got no resources, no savings account, no rich relatives. How are we going to make it? And this is what I heard in my spirit. I fed one prophet with ravens, and if I have to feed you that way, I can feed you with ravens. So on June the 1st, 2003, that first Sunday of June, when we announced to the church we were going to forego our salary and encourage them to listen to the voice of God and give in a way that was sacrificial so that the church could get out of its debts debts that we kind of inherited from situations that weren't our own. Um, People came and asked me, Pastor, how are you going to make it? I said, I don't know. The Lord just said he fed one prophet with ravens. If he has to, he'll feed another. The church was a really traditional church. We had Sunday morning, uh, Sunday night, Wednesday night Bible study, and I wore a suit just about everywhere. And uh, I would come home from those Sunday night services of praying with people in the altar time and I would get home and start to un, uh, you know, undress, take my jacket off and clean out my pockets to go to the cleaners with it the next day. And, and I would reach into my pocket and more than one occasion in that year I would pull out a crumpled envelope that was one of the giving envelopes in the back of the seat of the church. And you could tell an elderly person had written on that envelope because it was shaky handwriting. And somewhere that morning in a Sunday school classroom, a group of older saints, senior adults, had gathered together ones and fives and tens, crumpled them up, putting in an offering envelope. I never knew who it was from. All that was written on the outside of the envelope was the ravens. I still have those envelopes. I used the resources to live, but I kept the envelopes. We found them in our mailbox. Uh, There were more than one day we would come home and somebody had slipped onto our porch and left a heap of cucumbers and sweet potatoes and cantaloupes, and that's the way country folks do it, you know. They bring their vegetables. I mean, literally, they believe that giving a tenth of their increase, and um, uh, it's not a bad thing for the preacher to get fresh okra, and, uh, you know, that's pretty good. We lived on that for a year. I was worried one day, though, I was going to come home, find a goat tied to a tree, and I wouldn't know what to, <laughs> wouldn't know what to do with it, but it was... Uh, It was the goodness of God and the goodness of His people. I get offended in pastor's meetings when I listen to them talk about how bad their people are, how bad their board is. And I hear them say things like, ministry would be awesome if it wasn't for the people. And I want to say, shut up. Because it's the people that you went into ministry to serve. 
If there wasn't people, there wouldn't be a ministry. Yes, I know sheep bite. I've been bitten by some sheep. But not all sheep bite. Matter of fact, very few sheep bite. Most of the sheep are good, godly, gracious people. You can't judge the whole by the failure of a few. And that means all pastors by the failure of a few, all churches by the failure of a few, and all Christians by the failure of a few. At the end of the day, God is good and so are His people. And His goodness... I just sensed in my heart coming into 2017 that this was the theme of this year would be a year of wonder, that we would stand back in awe of the wonder of God. And the minute that came out of my mouth to the staff, tragedy after tragedy started unfolding in our congregation till yesterday. And I said, God, how in the world are we supposed to talk about a year of wonder when we're staring at the despair and the tragedy that we face? as a church family right now. And when I look throughout the scripture, I see that the greatest awe of God and his wonder was in times of national disaster and personal failure and struggle and heartache and pain. I truly believe that we're going to stand in awe and see the wonder of God. We're going to see his goodness. Matter of fact, Hosea 3, 5, Pastor Taylor shared with this with me this week when I was talking about the wonder. He said, Pastor, do you know that the prophet Hosea in Hosea 3, 5, at the end of a time of suffering for the people of God. At the end of that, Hosea comes and says in Hosea 3, 5, that the people are going to literally tremble in awe at the goodness of God. I believe that for us this year. In spite of our heartache, in spite of our pain, we're going to be reminded God is good, and I want to remind you again, so are His people. The second thing I'd love for you to know right now is I'd love for us to learn this as a church, the ministry of incarnational presence. You know what that is? That's the ministry of just being there. To to incarnate something means to embody it. You don't have to say anything. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And really, if you walk in that authority and you walk in that reality and you walk in that knowledge, your presence itself will comfort because you represent the faith family, you represent the Lord. And pastors are taught this, but I think it doesn't need to be a pastoral conversation. There is a ministry of incarnational presence for you, just showing up. It's the ministry of just being there. And moments like these, people say, but pastor, I don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything. Just be there. Matter of fact, when you start talking, when you don't know what to say is usually when things aren't going going to go well. Let me just say this, and I don't mean this ill, will, or mean in any way, and I know anytime this happens, the intent is meaningful. But I watch people who get sick, and they avoid church, because the minute it becomes public they are sick, they're going to have a line of people tell them if they'll quit eating this, or they'll start eating that or if they'll buy this product, or if they'll do this, if they'll go see this doctor. There are 45 different people who have a definite cure, and they've already heard it 45 different times, and everybody's got a solution to their problem. And so when people get sick or they're hurting, they don't need your counsel or your suggestions. They don't need, and I know we want to empathize with them, and so we want them to know we understand, so we start telling our stories. When loved ones are lost or parents like Jenna and Steve lose a daughter, we start going to them and start telling stories of our own loss. And there may be a time for that, but in the rawness of the moment, they don't need us to stack on top of their story. They just need us to be there. Just be quiet. 
just be there. There's a ministry of just being present. Don't underestimate the value that the God of creation lives in you. The Spirit of the living God has taken up residence in you, and there's something comforting just by being there. The third thing that I would share with you today in light of this life-guiding principle for me, Victor Hugo, quote, it's guided my life for a number of years, sorrow is a fruit, and God does not let it grow on limbs too weak to bear it. I think God believes in you more than you do. Some of you had heartache after heartache after heartache. And he's not going to put on more than you can bear. And you feel like you're crumbling under your own struggles at this very moment. But I want you to understand, if you're under the weight of sorrow right now, it's a fruit being born in your life. And God, he just thinks a lot of you. He thinks a lot of your faith. He thinks a lot of your ability. He thinks a lot of your loyalty. He's not going to put more on you than you're able to bear in this moment. There's something inside of you that you don't see. And it's going to come out like gold being tried from a fire through this particular situation. I know Jana's struggling, the mom of Allie, at this very moment. But there are moments when her strength is more visible. Yesterday, right after she received word of Allie's death, she quoted Job 121. that says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I can't rationalize it. But I know this. God is good. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That same idea is in Job. Job said in Job thirteen fifteen, life has fallen apart. And Job's wife said, curse God and die. Your God's unfaithful to you. He's quit on you. And Job said, I trust his character deeply enough. Even if he chose to slay me, yet would I put my hope in him. I trust him. You can't say those things if you don't trust the character of God. That when you can't track him, when you don't understand him, when you can't figure him out, you choose to trust him because you realize his character transcends the moment. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Yet blessed be the name of the Lord. I um, normally don't check my phone on Sundays when I'm getting ready to preach because if I get a text, it's usually criticism, and I'd rather deal with that on Monday, not right before I preach. So I, um, my phone buzzed today, and I kind of did this. You know, it's either too hot, it's too cold, the music's too loud, and something, and so. I'm trying to see what, what, what is it this time. And um, it was from Haley. She was forwarding me a message from Jana. She reached out to Jana this morning. And let her know as soon as service is over, we'll be there. What can we do for you? And I was trying to figure out what to do. You know, I, I can't ignore the moment. My guts are ripped out. My kids are hurt. I'm trying to figure out what to do. I've got to stand up in front of a school tomorrow. They canceled class. Stand up in front of a school tomorrow and dress families and kids and try to, you can't make sense out of a senseless thing, but somehow try to offer hope. I don't know what I'm going to say. I need prayer. We're supposed to offer grief counseling to a student body. So we ask you to pray for us in that regard. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, Lord, what do I do? You know, I've got a lot of points that I'd prepared to say today. What do I say? 
How do I ever get to what I intended to say? And then Haley forwarded me Jana's text. And this is what she said. Tell Brian to preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. Give him Jesus. He gave his son. God gave his only son so that my baby could live the eternal life she's living right now. Preach the gospel. So, I'm going to finish where I intended to start. The fourth guiding principle I would share with you today was the one I was going to start with. And it's the one that has guided my life. And I think it's important for us to start this whole conversation this year with this one for today, number four. Never waver from the indisputable authority of the Word of God. Never. Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, you shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. God has promised to preserve and protect His Word. And that divine protection has been necessary for its survival. There has never been a book more hated. There has never been an authority more questioned and ridiculed. Men have tried to destroy it. They have burned it. They have mocked it. Armies have marched against it. Kings and dictators and governments have outlawed it with penalty of death or imprisonment if you're ever found with it. The Bible has been perverted by its friends. It has been undermined by its enemies. Arrogant and brilliant men have held symposiums in an attempt to discredit it. Wealthy men have actually paid to have it rewritten because they didn't like the way it ended. Never has there been a book under more attack, and yet it's still the best-selling book in the history of the world. It is prominent and preeminent above all books. It's the monarch of books. It's the king among books. The Gutenberg Press was invented primarily to print this book. Never has there been a book rise from the ashes and disdain of men to change the course of history, to be the foundation of legal systems, to alter the destinies of men, women, and children. And none of it should come as our surprise that the book has lasted this long through so much ridicule because God said this in Isaiah 40 and 8, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. A few days ago, well-known Bible teacher Beth Moore gave a prophetic warning to about 60,000 young adults that were gathered into a packed arena. It was a warning that she related to their generation's view of the Word of God. Here's what Beth said. You will watch a generation of Christians, Christians, set the Bible aside in an attempt to be more like Jesus. And stunningly, it will sound completely plausible. This will be the cleverest of all the devil's schemes in your generation. Sacrifice truth for love's sake. Will you have the courage to live in the tension of both truth and love? As the truth of God's words becomes less palatable to the taste buds of today's culture, those who stand upon the word of God are going to be spit out. Just recently, gospel singer Kim Burrell was canceled from a daytime talk show because video of her teaching on biblical sexuality surfaced. 
her biblical stance was viewed as intolerant and hate-filled. And what Beth Moore has said will happen is already happening. There is a generation of Christians who want to follow Jesus, want to model his love and his compassion, but they don't want to embrace the fullness of the truth that he embodied. They want Jesus without the Bible. But Jesus is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. There is no Jesus without the Bible. Or it's the wrong Jesus. People who want on a regular basis to justify someone's biblical error to me by saying, but pastor, they are so sincere. Listen, sincerity without truth is deception. You can go to hell fast and furious being sincere the whole way there. The followers of Jim Jones were sincere. The followers of David Koresh were sincere. The followers of every other religious extremist have been sincere, but they are wrong. The herd of ISIS militant terrorists are sincere in their faith, but sincerity without truth is deception. Today, spotted across rural parts of the eastern United States, there are churches that handle snakes every Sunday as a supposed expression of their faith. They are sincere, but they are wrong. Without the Word of God as a plumb line, without the Word of God as an anchor of our life, we are bound to drift with feelings and emotions and trends and popularities and the majority because there is no truth. There may be a ton of sincerity, but there is no distinct absolute truth without the foundation and the authority of the Word of God. We cannot let trends be our guide. We have to let truth be our guide and the word of God is truth and you cannot separate Jesus from the written word because he is the word in flesh I've never been communicated or never been uh, accused of being the trendiest person around our church has never been accused of being the trendiest church around and that's not our objective There are going to be things that become popular in the church that will pass away as fads and there will be some people who build their lives and their ministries and their churches on the most recent fad. And when the fad comes away at the end of whatever decade it's in, they crash and burn. But what I can learn and what I realize and what I promise, the word of the Lord stands forever. And if I build my life and my family and the church, we may never be the coolest, we may never be the trendiest, but when all the other ones have come and gone, if we build it on the word, we're still going to be here. Our children will be standing, our marriages will be standing, our families will be standing, and our church will be standing because we must build our lives on the indisputable authority of the word of God. Here's the last thing that I would share with you today because of time. I have other things written, but I want to leave you with this because I think it's important right now. I believe we need to learn to embrace the discipline of prayer and fasting. There's probably no greater spiritual discipline that has impacted my life, my family, my ministry, me personally more than learning the discipline of prayer and fasting. Some of us pray. Many of us don't come from backgrounds that understand the concept of fasting I'm not going to go into a complete detail of it, but I just want to invite you. Tomorrow morning, we begin a 21-day fast as a corporate body. 
to calibrate our hearts and minds as an individual. In the same way that snakes shed skin and birds molt and animals shed their coats for different seasons, the first of the year is an opportunity for us to kind of slough off the junk last year and become less so that he can become more, decrease so that Christ may increase. Pastor Bear, they sang some songs at the end of the worship a moment ago to help get our hearts to a point of surrender where we were willing to give God everything, hold nothing back, give ourselves away. I don't know what that looks like for you in the next 21 days, but we join with churches all over the globe at the beginning of the year in a period of fasting between January the 9th and the next 21 days. I don't know what you want to do. There's no legalistic requirement here. Wherever you're at in your journey, do something. Give up something. Some people will fast a meal a day for 21 days. Some people will fast a day a week or a couple days a week, depending on their schedule for the next 21 days. Some people will avoid social media. They'll turn off the TV. I I don't know what you need to do, but you need to get something that consumes your life that by not doing it gives you focus and time and the ability to turn your heart to prayer and to the Word and, 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 and turn your heart towards Him. Now, my kids conveniently say, I, I think God's leading me to fast vegetables. Well, that doesn't count. That, that's not what I'm talking about. You know, we're going to fast homework for the next 21 days. That's, that, that's not what we're talking about. It needs to be a sacrifice, but it needs to be safe. It needs to be something that you feel in your heart is right. It's not something anybody can mandate or be legalistic, but something that is sacrificial for you in order to... And some people may fast the whole 21 days. I can remember as an early believer... Um, God moved on my heart to fast. I said, God, I don't want to be average. There are a lot of young guys that feel called into ministry. I don't want to be average. I know you call everybody, you love everybody, you're no respecter of persons, and I think it's here for the taking for any of us, but how do I get there? And he began to move my heart towards fasting. And so I started fasting a meal um, every now and then, usually on Wednesdays in high school. I would skip the cafeteria, I'd go to the library, I'd read my Bible and pray. As I got older into college, I started fasting three days at a time, and then I read about Wesley and John and Charles Wesley, the founders of Methodism, and George Whitfield, and how they fasted 10 days at a time, water and bread only. And so I did that. I felt at some point in time as I pursued God that I wanted to fast like Jesus. I wanted to fast like Moses, and I didn't think that was really possible to fast for 40 days until I met a man named Bill Bright. Bill Bright is the founder of the Campus Crusade for Christ. Bill had a passion to equip 2 million people in the United States to fast 40 days for spiritual awakening. And until he died in his 80s, Bill Bright fasted 40 days a year. And I learned how to pray and fast from Bill Bright. I had the privilege of spending his 81st birthday with him. And I learned a lot in print, but in some conversation as well. In 2003, I really felt like, or 2004, God had led me to that 40-day fast, six months of preparation, medical advice, a lot of reading. I never knew if I'd finish it or not. On the 38th day of that fast, you know, I'm kind of naive. I just have this idea if somebody's going to fast 40 days, by the time you get to the last few days, Michael and Gabriel, the archangel, are going to be walking by your side, whispering to you the mysteries of the kingdom. And I'm on day 38, no Michael, no Gabriel. I don't have any answers to any questions I ask, any prayers I prayed. I've just come off of a year of living without a paycheck, and I've gone 38 days without food, and I'm in a cabin in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas, and I get up that morning to take my communion, which is the only sustenance I really had, and the, the juice and the communion to pray, and I, and I just shut it, and I said, forget it. I mean, 
God, I'm angry. If I'm going to be honest with you, I don't want anything. I don't want riches. I, I don't want fame. I don't want anything. All I want to do is make an impact with my life, and I want to know what to do next in the church and in ministry and family. What do I do next? I just need to hear your voice. I live without a paycheck. We've sacrificed greatly. I've been 38 days without a morsel of bread except this communion wafer. I haven't heard your voice. It's like you left. What is, what is it going to take for a man to hear your voice? And I got angry, and I threw things. I'm in a, I borrowed a cabin in the middle of nowhere. I tossed couch cushions. I turned over end tables. I tipped over. I mean, I, I literally became a brat and had a, a fit. I mean, I lost my mind in my anger in that moment. And, and some of you are thinking, shame on you. Well, I can tell you, I had never been that honest with God in my life. It, it has become, looking back, the holiest moment of my life. Because it's the first time in my life I got past all the these and the thous and said to God what I really felt. And he responded. I felt his presence and I repented for my arrogance. I fell asleep on the couch with no resolve, but I did sense his presence. I was awakened in that cabin that day by a man who didn't knock. He just barged into the cabin. Knowing that part of the world, South Arkansas, in the middle of these pine forests, Nobody comes to those that means well unless they're intending to come there. Anybody that stumbles upon that cabin, there's a huge meth epidemic at that time, now opiate and meth epidemic in that part of the world. And so usually people hit those remote cabins to steal things for their next hit. So I thought my life was in danger. I stood up, put my hands in front of myself, and I saw this guy dressed in a blue jiffy, kind of, kind of like a lube, uh, jiffy lube or oil change place. And, and, and it was blue, and he had Dale on his name tag, Hair was a little oily, grease uh, on his calluses and his fingernails. I mean, it was frozen in time for me. Because in my mind, this is the way it ends. I'm, I'm going to die right here. I had gone from 200 pounds to 150 pounds, and I'm looking at what this guy's got a starry eye, and, his, uh, and I'm thinking he's high, he's tripping, and, and he's come for a hit, and I'm in his way. And he could tell I was extremely startled, and he looked at me, and he said, Sir, I'm sorry. He said, um, I know you're probably wondering who I am. He said, I'm I'm a truck driver, and I left Mississippi about three hours ago with a load. And I got in my truck this morning and started praying in the Holy Ghost. And I can't tell you how relieved I was to hear this man praying in the Holy Ghost. Because he's either a spirit-filled murderer or he's not a murderer. And I, I was relieved at that moment that I might live. He looked at me and said, Pastor, there has been, or he didn't know I was a pastor at the moment, but he looked at me and said, there has been a word in my heart. I mean, I knew in my heart that there was somebody in spiritual authority that I was supposed to talk to today. I have a very clear set of instructions, and I called every pastor I knew. I've stopped at churches along the way. Nothing worked out. I'm in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas, and I felt this impression to turn down this road. I don't even know if I can turn my rig down in this road. When I pulled up and saw this cabin here, a vehicle here, I got excited. I'm sorry. I walked in without knocking. He said, I know you want to know who I am, but I need to know who you are. I said, I'm on the 38th day of a 40-day fast. I'm a pastor from a church about an hour away. Tears started rolling down his face, and he said, Sir, you're the man. I was disarmed. Honestly, I thought I was looking at an angel. The Bible says, beware that you entertain angels unaware. And if I was going to entertain an angel, he had probably come the way God does things, he's born in a manger and a feed trough. He's probably going to come in a jiffy lube suit with his name Dale, you know, It's the way God does things. So I think I'm looking at an angel. I'm disarmed. I sit down. He grabs my hands. And for the next 45 minutes, 
He answers every question I asked God in the previous 38 days to the most extreme detail. I mean, it was a book of Acts moment. I mean, it was so supernatural that when I tell it, people don't even believe me. So a few years ago, I, 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 I did some research trying to figure this out. I talked to all the landowners. I described the guy, and they were able to run him down. And I figured out Dale is actually lives in South Arkansas, passing through that area. And I brought him back to the church probably seven years ago to hear his side of the story, just so you wouldn't think I was lying. It really happened. And he answered questions. He said statements that the Lord had put on his heart that day. He couldn't have known any other way. And some of those statements will show up in this 42 series because they have guided the trajectory of my life. Had I not been in a season of fasting and prayer, I don't believe I would have had that moment. I must decrease so that Christ may increase. And I want to challenge you, whatever it looks like for you, to join us. Our church needs it. There's some hurting families in our church, a hurting nation, a hurting community that needs us to do more than being able to engage their intellect. We should engage. The church should engage the intellect. I'm tired of churches just going off a feeling and thinking that we don't have to engage the intellect. We should be workmen that need it not be ashamed. We need to engage people's intellect. But we don't have to apologize for being people of the Spirit who also we are intellectually engaged and spiritually empowered at the same time. And there is no way we can be Spirit-empowered without fasting and prayer. Embrace the discipline of fasting and prayer. Mark Batterson, my friend, said this, the transcript of your prayers become the script of your life. So what are you praying over your kids? What are you praying over your marriage? What are you praying over your future? The transcript of your prayers become the script of your life. Is the script of your life empty because your prayer time is empty? Then fill it. Be with Jesus. Calibrate your heart over the next 21 days to the things of God. Set aside something and commit your whole self to Him. I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me across this room today as we prepare to close the next few moments. I, um, I want to resource you. If you want to join us in this journey of fasting and prayer, um, We've created a website for you, northplacefast.com. Okay? Um, I'm looking out and I'm seeing people here today who came into our church addicted. They were drug addicts and stumbled into a Christmas Eve service. They're in this service right now. I just kind of caught eyes with them. Showed up at church on a Sunday, heard me talk about a fast, never fasted, never didn't even know what it was. Started reading the Bible, fasting. Had an encounter with Jesus. Day 13. Day 13 of that fast. They didn't know what fasting was. Didn't know how to read the Bible. Didn't know where to start. So they just started fasting. On day 13, boom, Jesus showed up. Had an encounter with God. Revolutionized their life. Been a part of the church ever since. You don't, you don't overcome addiction and the baggage that was brought by those relationships to faith without something supernatural happening. And we don't see God do supernatural things by just going through religious motion. We lay our all 
My grandpa used to sing a song. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Did you give you half? Did you give him half? Did you give him part? Did you give him all? I think it's an opportunity for us to lay it all down. We're going to resource you, northplacefast.com. Every morning at 5 o'clock, a different pastor is going to post a devotion. Um, they're available beginning at 5 a.m. every morning. They'll be there all day. We're only going to post them the day of. I've written one already. They'll post at 5 a.m. in the morning. And every day after that for the next 21 days, there are some I will be doing, others will be doing to resource you. Every Thursday morning at 6 o'clock, we're going to meet right here. We're going to have worship. Pastor Bear is going to lead in worship. We'll pray corporately, break out privately. I'll give you some direction, and then we'll come back and end together. Some of the most powerful times we have as a church family, 200 of us, 250 of us, at 6 a.m. in the morning, early in the morning during seasons of fasting. This Thursday, 6 a.m., right here, the next three Thursdays. I challenge you to join us. It's rich. It's powerful. You're welcome to come and have your life shaped like gold being tried by the fire. I have a request. Pray for us. I have three degrees in theology. I can't make sense of some things. And it bothers me when preachers try when they can't. We don't need cliches. We need authenticity. So when you don't understand, you can't explain it. Just say, I can't explain it. But I know this. God is good. He's faithful. I can't track Him. But I'm going to trust Him. Because His character has been proven from generation to generation. One of Allie's last tweets The last thing she posted on social media was this. When life is at its hardest, look to the highest. I think that's where we look today. Her mom asked me to preach the gospel. I think it would be fitting for me to do this right now. I think we understand the brevity of life more right now those of us connected especially. I'd hate to leave this service if there was somebody that didn't know Jesus, somebody been away from Jesus. Proverbs 27 says, don't boast about tomorrow for you never know what a day may bring. I want to talk to you for a moment and then pray. If you would bow your heads with me and say, Pastor, I've been away from God or I've never known Him and today I sense His presence in this room. And I want to surrender my life to Jesus. If that's you, I'm not pushed and pulled. and I just want to stop. And in light of what the Spirit of God is doing in this room, give you an opportunity to commit or recommit your life to Jesus. Pastor, I'm away. My heart has drifted. Or I've never known Him. And I want to commit my life to Jesus today. Or I want to recommit my life to Him. If that's you, would you slip your hand up high enough to let me see it? Heads bowed. Thank you. I see adults and young adults and teenagers, senior adults. Thank you. Thank you. All across this room today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to put words in your mouth. 
but your heart has to engage them in faith today. Father, we stand here today as a group of people and we confess our sin. We believe in our heart that you were raised from the dead. We confess you as Lord of our lives. Your word says that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I believe there are people in this room today who are calling, confessing, repenting. Who understand their soul is drifted. And they want 2017 to be different than last year. And they want to begin it in relationship with the the God of the universe. And that happens with Jesus. So today as they renew and recommit themselves to you or step across that line for the very first time would you let something supernatural happen in them today let today be the first day of the rest of their lives write a new story will you bless them and keep them will you make your face shine down upon them will you be gracious to them and turn your countenance their direction today in Jesus name These altars are open if you want to come kneel and pray and be with God. We're going to keep the environment worshipful. And look, if you're crowded, this is too crowded for you. Saturday night, 6 o'clock, Sunday morning at 9, there's a lot more room. So if you feel crowded, you don't like the crowd, you have opportunities to be less crowded. Thank you for being here this morning. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at North Place and on Facebook at facebook.com slash North Place Church. To watch the video of this message, go to northplacechurch.com slash watch.